Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Our guest in this edition of Radio Curious is Anthony Adams Esquire. Currently, among other things, a deputy public defender in Mendocino County, California. He's also a poet. Formerly, he was a California parole commissioner and also served in the California State Assembly. At a meeting of the Mendocino County Bar Association in June of 2018, Adams recited some of his own poetry and shared his stories about his work as a parole commissioner. I then decided to invite him to be a guest on Radio Curious so we could learn about his life. Anthony Adams visited the studios of Radio Curious on August 23, 2018 and described himself as an interesting fellow, a deeply romantic person. In the course of our conversation, his self-description revealed itself. We began our visit when I asked him about poetry related to his work. No, I don't have any poems specific to my work. When I write poetry, which, you know, in candor, I don't do as often as I really should, but I'm a deeply romantic person at heart. That's where my my passion lies. I, I love the idea of love. I love romance. I think those kind of things are just sort of the lifeblood to give meaning to so much more of the work that we do. It's the yin to my yang, which is the, the remainder of the work that I do in public service. That part is just enchanting to me. I love the simplicity of poetry and the way in which concepts are boiled down to their bare, bare minimums and expressed in ways that elucidate in form, but often amuse. And so when I write poetry for myself or for others, it almost always has some type of romantic bent. Can you tell us more about the ideas of being a romantic person, a loving the idea of love? There's something so oddly magical about it. It's what elevates us in my mind it, from being just animals is this capacity for love. And, you know, I'm particularly... I'm particularly enchanted by the idea of sort of the two versions of love that get thrown around and how they're contrasting in such interesting ways. You know, there, there's the romantic notion of what I'm going to just generically call sort of the world's idea of love is the Valentine love where you're getting all this adoration and somebody thinks you're fantastic and there's efforts to try to make you feel good. And it's just this is a warm, fuzzy, intimate kind of feeling. But there's a very different kind of love that I'm equally impressed with. And that is a love that is more born out of a religious traditions, if you will, or, or it's kind of a, a more outward looking perspective. And, you know, I think there's a term, a Greek term, it's kind of agape love. It's the idea of love being expressed by how you choose to react to the world, how you choose to give to the world. Rather than love being characterized by what you're receiving or how you're feeling, love is instead defined by how you choose to treat somebody else. Sort of Judeo-Christian biblical sense, if you will, it's the idea of love is patient, love is kind, love is, is these concepts where it's you making a conscious decision to be gracious, merciful, kind, respectful to somebody else. And that representation of love is so powerful to me because it's not self-centered and it creates in us this ability to really express our 
adoration for somebody. It's the only true love that's sustainable, right? No matter what we wish, the reality is, is you get involved in relationships, you get involved in these situations where you're enjoying the love of another person, that intimacy and that romance and that, that initial honeymoon period where everything is arousal and excitement and, and sort of eros, you know, type of love. Let's be candid. That will pass. If you're at all a student of the human condition, you can reignite it from time to time and you can enjoy it again, but it doesn't always get sustained. But agape love does because it's a conscious decision to love another person in a way that helps them feel it. It sounds to me like what you were just saying provides a, um, a theory for love in the non-agape form. Do you have one to establish it in the agape form? Boy, do you mean in the sense of like an overriding philosophical consideration or are you talking about in a practical sense of the word? Uh, more practical. Philosophical applies to practical. It does. Absolutely, it does. That's a fine point. I think an expression of it may be, for me anyway, best understood in terms of the type of work that I choose to do. The work I, I do is about helping other people. And it's often misunderstood work. As as you know, Barry, the work that I, I do, you know, that put spread on the table, as it were, is criminal defense. I work in a public defender's office. And it's not exactly the kind of thing that comes to mind when people think about love. But let me tell you something. When you devote yourself to meeting the needs of somebody, especially somebody that, that owes you nothing and you owe nothing, that you're simply there because you want to try to be a bridge to help them. In my work, oftentimes, is just giving a voice to somebody who might feel voiceless. It means making sure that somebody who has committed some crime has the constitutional protections that they should enjoy and the respect to know that at the end of the day, they may have engaged in, in conduct that's unbecoming or criminal that doesn't negate their humanity. There are consequences, there are punishments, there's retribution, there's revenge, all these things that play a part in, in one fashion or the other and sort of the criminal justice system. All those things are palpable and they're real and they're present and you're never going to get away from them. But to have the capacity to show somebody this sort of agape love, to recognize their core humanity and at least hear them out. That's a powerful message for somebody to receive. And you see this in the work of people all around us, whether you're at plowshares and you're, and you're delivering food to people and you're affirming you know, the core sustenance of their life, or whether you're at Manzanita services and you're reaching out to people who are struggling day to day with emotional or, or psychological considerations, or frankly, if you're just a really damn fine checker and you're at Safeway and you're just smiling through the course of the day and helping others feel light and airy about the drudgery that can often be the characteristic of our day-to-day -day lives. I just think it's an attitude of generosity. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Anthony Adams, a member of the Mendocino County Public Defender's Office, who, as he explains, represents people in criminal court who, in the role of the public defender, are not able to provide their own attorney. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Anthony, your first professional work was with the Board of Supervisors in San Bernardino County, and then you were a member of the State Assembly. And how long was that for? I transitioned from the Board of Supervisors to the legislature in 2006. Most of 2005, I had decided to take a year 
off from work so that I could campaign full time. And let's be clear, I have never been a wealthy man. So it was a tremendous leap of faith for my family to trust me that we had saved enough and had scrimped enough and sacrificed enough that we would have the capacity to go a year without working while this was happening because you pay a lot of people on a campaign, but the candidate is not one of them. And so there was a lot of fear, I think, about that endeavor, but it worked out well. But that transition from 2005, 2006 was particularly marked for me because I was finishing my last year of law school simultaneously. So in 2003, I began law school and I was working for the Board of Supervisors, doing my first year and second year while still there. My third year of law school, I was campaigning full time while also going to law school full time. And then you won the election. And then won the election. In May of 2006, I graduated from law school. In June of 2006, just a few weeks later, I won my primary election. And for the purposes of that district at that time, the primary was the election to win. How long were you a member of the state assembly? 2010. And it was an incredibly interesting and enjoyable and tumultuous and scary time. Because as you may recall, during this period of time, the state of California, as was the rest of the United States, going through a tremendous recession. We had the um, silicon bubble had burst. There was a housing plummeting situation going on. Everything was collapsing financially. And there was talk all over the state of cities going bankrupt, pension funds blowing up out of proportion. It was essentially economic meltdown. And the culmination of that catastrophe happened to coincide with my last year as a member of the legislature. Why was that the last year? In 2009, the state of California hit a crossroads. Essentially, for all intents and purposes, we were on the brink of insolvency. And for your listeners, a little tiny brief economic lesson here. Unless the U.S. federal government authorizes an agency or an organization to go bankrupt, they don't get the choice, right? So cities can go bankrupt because the federal government's given the authority to do so. Counties can even go bankrupt, but the federal government has never given authority to states to go bankrupt. So when we found ourselves in financial dire straits in 2009, we knew we were headed for a catastrophe. And in case that point wasn't clear enough, the folks from Wall Street made it abundantly clear when they came out to visit us and they laid out for us a plan of financial security that would invariably involve raising taxes. Well, at the time, Barry, I was a Republican. And if there was anything you didn't do as a Republican is you didn't raise taxes. Today, apparently, you can do anything if you're a Republican, if your name is Trump. But back then, it was a party that took that issue very seriously. In fact, more seriously than anything else. And as a function of my desire to try to keep the state solvent, I ended up having to make a very unpopular vote that resulted in a very public shaming and an effort to recall me. Are you a Republican now? I am not. I'm currently a no party preference, as they say. Were you recalled? I was not. We beat back the recall. In fact, we beat back the recall in glorious and splendid fashion. And by the way, I had a hand in it, but credit where credit is due. Many, many, many people in fine organizations stepped up to make sure that that didn't happen. And I would like to tell you that it was because they thought I was such a fabulous legislator. But the truth of the matter is, Barry, 
they were personally invested as well in sending a clear message that if a person takes a risk and gambles on something as important as casting an unpopular vote to try to save the state, save the jobs that were going to be lost because of insolvency or, or financial ruin, save the organizations that depended on government, they wanted to make darn sure that that person didn't get kicked out of office and solidify the message that a bad vote cost you your job. And those savings were made. And they were indeed. Having said that, though, I was at the time eligible for, to run for one additional term, and I elected not to do that. That is the time when you moved on to be a parole commissioner. That's correct. At the time when I was in my last year of office and I had made the announcement that I wasn't going to seek re-election, I was able to to work with at the then Schwarzenegger administration to try to identify whether an appointment would be appropriate for me and whether I might have an opportunity to make application for work with so the governor's you, office. So you made an application, you were appointed, and how long did you serve as a parole commissioner? Just under a year. And So tell us about what you do in that capacity. Well, it's an amazing job. The parole commissioners, of which there are 12 in the life prisoner parole section of CDCR, have an enormous responsibility. There are, at any time in the state of California, about 5,000 or 5,500 people who are in prison who are facing life sentences with the possibility of parole. Of those 5,000 people, once they have served a base term, they become parole eligible. So, How long is the base term? It varies. It depends on what the judge gave them. They can on have, the sentencing. At sentencing, they could be 15 to life, 20 to life, 30 to life, 40 to life. Whatever the first term was to life, once they hit that first term number, 20 years to life, 20 years in, they would be able to sit down for the first time with a parole commissioner. So give us an example of what happens at that sit down with the parole commissioner. So what happens is you sit down in a room that is not much bigger than maybe 10 by 10. It's got a regular table and some chairs and, and usually nondescript, always within the confines of the prison walls. So you're sitting in, as you can imagine, a very drab room ordinarily. And there is... A parole commissioner, one of 12, in this case, that would be me, a civil servant who is a parole commissioner, a deputy parole commissioner, and the inmate. And you engage them in conversation. These conversations would last approximately three to four hours, and you would literally rehash their entire lives. What kinds of things do you look for that would lead you to decide that the prisoner is parole eligible? Most often you're looking for some genuine insight, some maturity. For example? You want to know that they understand what were the underlying issues that caused them to end up in a life of crime and to some degree to commit the life crime itself. Because let's be clear, very, very, very few people would ever receive a life sentence on a first offense, no matter how egregious it may be. It takes a very very horrible type of thing to happen for that to occur. Is that true for murder as well? Yes. Most people don't just jump right into murder. Most people find themselves in a situation where, you know, they've engaged in criminal activity and criminal conduct. And really what happens more often than not is they find themselves in a situation of desperation. They find themselves in a situation where they're surrounded by other people who have made poor life decisions and poor life decisions coupled with other poor life decisions has an exponential rate of uh, creating harm. Why did you choose to be a parole commissioner for less than a year? Well, 
to answer that question, let me describe to you what a standard week looks like because it was consistent week in and week out through the, the entirety of the year. On Saturday morning, you receive a package from CDCR that was literally about four feet high, three to four feet high of what we call C files or the central files for the inmates that you're going to be interviewing that week. 10, 12, 13 of them, 14, 15, whatever the number may be. These are very large documents that contain the totality of everything that got them to prison and then everything that's happened to them since prison. And remember, we're looking at a person's life, often 20, 30, 40 years of their life contained within this file. Through the course of the weekend, my responsibility was to read through that file to try to really understand what got that person to this place in their lives and how they've been comporting themselves since they've come to prison. You work hard all weekend long to get through these files because first thing bright and early Monday morning, you get in the car, you drive three to four hours to a prison, you check in with the prison and you start to conduct these life prisoner hearings. At the end of that day, you check into a crappy hotel because let me tell you something, they do not build Hilton's next to prisons. You end up staying in these little flea bag hotels and it's not fun. You're by yourself and all you can do is try to prepare for the next day's hearings. You wake up, you do it from eight in the morning until five, six, seven o'clock at night. You go back to the crappy hotel and you do that Monday through Friday. Friday night, you finally drive home. You get home bedraggled around seven, eight o'clock at night. And when you wake up Saturday morning, there's a new box waiting for you. And it never ends. Why do some people take that on as a life profession? Almost exclusively, the people who are most prolific at staying on the Board of Parole Commissioner's for any length of time are people who have spent an entire life in what profession and are now in a sense, in, a, in, a, in essence, in some form of retirement. So they have the time to do this. It's they have established their homes, their families, their lives. They've led their lives. They've grown their families and they have this capacity to do this with me. I couldn't see my family. I couldn't spend time with my significant others. I couldn't get in to see the dentist for goodness sakes, because they're never open when I'm home. And it was one of those types of things where it really requires a special kind of individual who is at a place in their lives where their home lives are essentially settled. And it was after working as a parole commissioner that you came here to Mendocino County to uh, work in the public defender's office. Well, I had about a one-year interlude, actually. And in that one year, I was invited to uh, practice law for the first time. Where? And it was down in Riverside County. I have a couple of friends that I knew back in my days from the Board of Supervisors, they would started a successful civil litigation firm and wanted me to come and spend some time with them. And they're both generous of spirit and kind people. And I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to get my hands dirty, as they say, to, to learn the law. And it turns out that that wasn't quite what they had in mind. And as a consequence of that, it turned out to not be a particularly enjoyable year for me. Instead of really learning about the law, what I really discovered was in a civil litigation firm, rainmaking is way more important than litigation in many respects. What drew you to Mendocino County? After that year engaging in civil litigation, watching neighbors fight neighbors over property disputes, and I was fed up with it and wanted desperately to get out of that line of work. I knew I hated, just did not enjoy any moment of it. And you know, Barry, you're an attorney. You just form interrogatories and depositions. It just never ends. And that's not what I wanted. My passion, the thing that had always propelled me throughout my entire professional career was 
being involved in people's day-to-day lives, being involved in their lives in a meaningful way. And I felt distant from that. So when I decided I can't do this anymore, I reached out to some friends. I had a friend who was a head deputy in the public defender's office in San Bernardino. And I also had a friend who at the time was the actual district attorney for San Bernardino County. And I literally set up breakfast appointments with both of them, sat down and asked them, what do you do? Do you think it's something that I might enjoy? Because I think it is, but I don't know. What do you think? And both of them offered me an opportunity to get in and check it out. And I accepted first the offer from a, a really fine fellow. His name is Mark Shoup. And he was, like I said, he's, yeah, in fact, he still is, you know, a, a prominent attorney in the public defender's office in San Bernardino County. And he invited me to come in and, and work for them as part of their misdemeanor team. I'm telling you what, Barry, two weeks into doing this work, doing it pro bono, as they say, doing this for free. I knew this is where I wanted to be. You never gave the uh, district attorney's office an opportunity? I knew with 100% blazing clarity that public defense was important to me, that I would never be a prosecutor. And shortly after that, I spent some time in the San Bernardino County Public Defender's Office. And then shortly thereafter, I was given the invitation to come up to Mendocino County and and work in this public defender's office, and I've never looked back. What year was that? That would have been 2014, January of 2014. And the other area where you have experience is in radio. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Tell us about it. Well, it was, it was a very interesting foray into radio because it was never my intention to do that. I had a boss. He was the member of the Board of Supervisors. And believe it or not, for a politician, he was just shy. He, he was just shy, but he was also a very bright politician and he knew he needed to keep his name out there in the public. He knew he needed to be, you know, seen and heard. And so when a local radio station uh, offered him a little program that he could do on a once a week basis for like half an hour, he said, yes. Well, it wasn't very long before it occurred to me as a staff member to him that he was never going to be able to do this job. He would make excuses. He would get sick. He didn't want to participate. There was always some reason why he couldn't do this. And he kept asking me if I would fill in. And so I would literally take the hot seat, as they say, and I would conduct this show with a little format that he had created. Well, it wasn't too long after that, that the radio, the manager of the radio station approached me and said, why are we having this person's name attached to it when the radio show is really you? And I said, don't ask me that question because it's my boss and I'm not going to be the one to tell him that I should do this. But the manager, to his credit, did. And my boss, to his credit, said, sure, if he wants it, he can have it. And so, Barry, it was extraordinary. I sat down at the mic and it was a clear channel communications radio station. And one hour turned into two hours and two hours turned into three and three turned into four. And then and I, what were your topics? I had the most fun picking. They're all... Talk radio. Talk radio, but I didn't want to be the next Rush Limbaugh. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be a Bill O'Reilly. I didn't want to be... Were you a Republican then? I was a Republican, but I made it a point to try to be as open to the possibility of hearing all sides as possible. I have a really natural contrarian streak anyway, so it played right into it. It was beautiful. And so what I do is I would have these segments where I would talk about the news of the day and I would get up in the morning. I'd curate the news the best I could. I'd call it out and, and find all the stories that were fascinating. Usually on the, it was always on the national level. And then 
I would talk about the story, talk about its implications, talk about the ramifications of it. And I would try to embrace both sides and try to share with my viewers or my listenership, I should say, the, the complexities of the issue and try to flesh them out. And it was just exhilarating. I love doing it. Can you give us some examples of your contrarian streak? <laughs> Other than the ones that you've already mentioned, with uh, sp specific attention to the uh, vote in the assembly that promoted the failed recall. Well, that was a calculated decision more than a contrarian decision. But I will tell you that my inclination, if you tell me something, is to immediately think about how that might not be true and argue with you. <laughs> it takes a tremendous force of will to not do that. Let me tell you something. The mark of a lawyer. Exactly. And I'm telling you what, people do not appreciate it at all. People hate that when you argue just for arguing's sake. But I'm not kidding you. This is a true story, Barry. When I was a wee tot, when I was a young boy, a absolutely common refrain in my house is my dad saying, quit arguing just for arguing's sake, or you're just talking to hear the sound of your own voice. Nothing has changed in all these years. Well, Anthony Adams, uh, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask some more questions about you. All right. And one of them is a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life, gave you a new vision of life. Oh, let's see. Back around 1990 or so, a friend of mine invited me to his house one evening to hang out. His, it was his dad's house, and his dad had this beautiful, beautiful home up in the Hollywood Hills. And I remember that evening, I had just decided to go off by myself a little bit. And I was looking out over the city and the sparkling lights. And I was marveling at the tremendous amount of wealth and fame and power that I saw around me. And it occurred to me that I wasn't interested. I realized in that moment, it was never going to be a motivating factor in my life. I was never going to be that guy who worked hard to chase money or worked hard for fame. Tell us, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well, Barry, I want to be you when I grow up. <laughs> That's very kind. <laughs> I would like to be well-established in whatever community I am. I'd like to be well-respected in what I do. I'd like to make my family proud. And whatever I do that gets those things to happen, that's just fine with me. And finally, Anthony Adams, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? A book? <laughs> you know that I enjoy the poetry. Nine Horses, Billy Collins. If people like works of fiction, The Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman, that is an absolutely stunning, beautiful story about these women in this small uh, Jewish village set almost 3,000 years ago. Finally, if you're the type of person who just can't get enough good nonfiction, 1492, it's the story of the last few voyages of Christopher Columbus, and it is staggeringly fascinating. Anthony Adams, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. Barry, it is my absolute pleasure. <music> Anthony Adams Esquire, a poet and philosopher, currently is a Mendocino County, California Deputy Public Defender. Adams is also a poet and formerly a California Parole Commissioner. He served in the California State Assembly for four years and 
formerly hosted his own radio program. The books that Anthony Adams recommends are Nine Horses, Poems by Billy Collins, a former National Poet Laureate, The Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman, and 1492, a novel of Christopher Columbus, the Spanish Inquisition, and A World at the Turning Point by Newton Froelich. This program was recorded on August 23, 2018. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 